Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skiophonic Podcast, the home of short stories for lifelong learners. Hi, guys. What is Skiophonic? Well, it's a huge collection of thought-provoking short stories. They're true. They're fun. And as it turns out, they just might make you more interesting. Skiophonic started out in the mind of an ER doctor looking for a way to learn while exercising. He was creative and full of ideas, but his voice was not well-suited for narration. So he teamed up with the latest AI tech and formed a collaboration that has blossomed into an audiobook, a mobile app, and this podcast. You know, whatever the platform, these stories are the perfect way to fill those free gaps of time in your schedule with content that is both interesting and productive. So thanks for joining us and please check out the website. That's www.skiophonic.com or download the app on Apple or Google Play stores. Great. Now let's see what stories are lined up for us today. Andrew? Hello, guys, and hello, listeners. Welcome to the first episode of the Skiophonic Podcast. On tap today, we dive right into our first topic, people worth pondering. Stories on characters from history who deserve a second or maybe even a first look. So kick back and enjoy the sounds of Skiophonic. Mansa Musa, the richest man ever. Did you know that there once lived a man who was more wealthy than Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos combined? Meet Mansa Musa, the 14th century African king who remains the wealthiest person in history. Ruling the gold-rich Mali Empire, his fortune was so vast that his generosity alone caused an economic meltdown. Mansa Musa is perhaps best known for his pilgrimage to Mecca in 1324, which he undertook with an entourage of over 60,000 people, including soldiers, merchants, slaves, and scholars. The journey, which covered thousands of miles and took over a year to complete, was a demonstration of the Mali Empire's wealth and power. Mansa Musa distributed vast amounts of riches along the way. In Cairo, his gifts are said to have diluted the city with gold, causing inflation and an economic crisis that took over 10 years to recover. Mansa Musa's reign is also associated with a period of great artistic and intellectual flourishing in Western Africa. He founded several new universities, which attracted scholars from across the world. The University of Sankor in Timbuktu, for example, became one of the most important Islamic centers of learning of its time. Mansa Musa's generosity knew no limits. He built mosques and schools and gave away gold to the poor. Musa's image is seen painted across the region of Western Africa in many of the European maps of the time. This legacy of wealth, influence, power, and benevolence continues to be felt to this day. So don't forget Mansa Musa, the king who could turn cities into gold. Dr. James Berry. I'd like to share with you a story about an extraordinary physician, but be warned in this story things aren't always as they seem. Meet Dr. James Berry. Born in 1795, Berry enrolled at the University of Edinburgh, earning a medical degree in 1812. After joining the British Army as a surgeon, his career took him around the world to various colonies, where he left a profound and lasting impact on medical practice. Barry's contributions were groundbreaking. He performed one of the very first successful cesarean sections where both mother and child survived. 
quite a feat for the days before anesthesia. He championed strict hygiene practices that drastically reduced the spread of diseases, and his passion for the humane treatment of patients, including prisoners, minorities, and the underprivileged, marked him as a compassionate and forward-thinking medical professional. Barry had a slight build and spoke with a soft voice. He was a private person, typically avoiding social gatherings, but his fiery temper and workaholic zeal were legendary. He was a skilled swordsman and was known to duel at even the slightest provocation. He always slept with both a pistol and a sword by his side. Despite his notable eccentricities, Barry's reputation as a skilled surgeon and medical reformer remained untarnished. After retiring, Barry died of dysentery in London in 1865. It was during the preparation of his body for burial that a stunning revelation came to light. Dr. James Barry was not a man at all, but actually a woman. The discovery sent shockwaves through British society and led to a re-examination of Barry's life. Born Margaret Ann Bulkley, she had adopted a male persona just so she could pursue a career in medicine, a field that was, at the time, closed to women. The transformation into James Barry was meticulously planned. With the support of family and influential friends, Margaret assumed her deceased uncle's name and identity. She adopted male clothing and worked hard at imitating male mannerisms. While at the University of Edinburgh, Bulkley was reclusive, carefully avoiding situations where her secret might be exposed. Her high-pitched voice was explained away as the lingering effect of a childhood respiratory illness, and her readiness to engage in duels further deflected attention from her true identity. Throughout her career, Bulkley maintained her male disguise with extraordinary care. Her lifelong friendships and professional relationships never led to the revelation of her secret. As a surgeon, she never faltered, rising to the rank of Inspector General, the highest of any medical officer. Bulkley's ingenious disguise and dedication make Dr. James Barry one of the 19th century's most intriguing characters. It causes us to pause and reflect on the experiences in life that Margaret perhaps gave up, all for the sake of her professional pursuits. A sacrifice made for science in an era of unbending gender stereotypes. Evil Knievel. If you weren't around when it happened, I bet you've heard about it. That time in 1974 when the world tuned in to a live television broadcast to watch the next even more death-defying antic from America's favorite daredevil. This time he was strapping himself into a custom-built rocket called the Sky Cycle X-2 in an attempt to jump over Idaho's Snake River Canyon. Did he make it? No, not exactly but it turns out that was pretty common for the man we knew as evil. Born in the small town of Butte, Montana in 1938, Robert Knievel's early life was tough. His parents divorced when he was just a baby, and he was raised by his grandparents. From a young age, he had an uncanny knack for risk and adventure. By his own account, he was a hellraiser, leading him to serve jail time for a variety of misdeeds. Robert once shared a jail cell with a man named William Kinefell, who had adopted the nickname Awful Knoffel. Knievel was so inspired by his cellmate's badass moniker that he rechristened himself as Evil Knievel, thus setting the stage for his daredevil persona. 
Knievel's career began when he formed a troupe called Evil Knievel's Motorcycle Daredevils, a show which traveled around the United States performing death-defying stunts. This led to his first televised jump in 1967, where he soared over 50 cars lined up at a racetrack in Gardena, California. He crash-landed but walked away, bruised but undaunted. From that point onward, Evil was a one-man show. Knievel's star soared as he orchestrated a series of increasingly audacious jumps. One of his earliest and most significant jumps was at the Caesars Palace in Las Vegas in 1967. Riding his Triumph Bonneville motorcycle, Evil attempted to leap over the casino's fountains. Unfortunately, he again crashed upon landing, sustaining fractures to his skull, hip, and wrists alongside a crushed pelvis and femur. Perhaps his most well-known stunt was his leap over 13 double-decker buses at Wembley Stadium in London in 1975. After a bone-shattering crash, Knievel, having broken his pelvis once again, told the audience, I will never, ever, ever jump again. He, of course, did. It sort of makes you wonder just how good of stuntman was he really. Well, statistically, Evil crashed on about 25% of his jumps. He suffered multiple serious injuries, each often followed by extensive surgeries and rehabilitation. It's worth noting that Knievel's stunts were not only physically demanding, but also psychologically taxing. He faced intense pressure to perform and often had to overcome anxiety, fear, and doubts before moving on. After retirement, life wasn't always smooth sailing. He faced multiple legal issues, including a six-month jail stint. His health began to decline due to years of hard living, numerous injuries, and hepatitis C attributed to his many blood transfusions. In total, it's believed that Knievel endured over 400 broken bones throughout his career, a Guinness World Record. He passed away in 2007 at the age of 69. He was more than a man in a jumpsuit. He was an embodiment of daring audacity, pushing boundaries, and living life on the edge. I guess if you had to sum it up, you could say this guy lived a life that was pure evil. James Garfield. How much do you know about the 12th President of the United States, James A. Garfield? If you're like most of us, the answer is probably not a lot. But let's take a look at the life of this man, and by the end I think you'll probably agree with me that his inspiring backstory is one that should be in the bios of more of our U.S. presidents. Born in a log cabin in Orange, Ohio, in November of 1831, Garfield met with hardship at an early age. After his father's untimely death, his mother was left to raise him and his siblings by herself. Yet, adversity didn't dampen his spirit or hinder his intellectual growth. He was a self-made man in the truest sense. As a teenager, James worked as a janitor at the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute in Hiram, Ohio. The young Garfield was driven by a voracious desire to learn. His diligent efforts paid off, transforming him from janitor to student, and then from student to teacher at the very same institution. A classics professor, he taught Greek and Latin to eager students. And his list of roles didn't end with teaching. Fascinated by spirituality, he studied theology and eventually became a preacher, delivering sermons and spreading messages of faith and hope in his community. 
Garfield's speaking skills honed from the pulpit would serve him well later in life. His journey took another unexpected turn when he next found work as a canal boat driver. He navigated the Ohio and Erie Canal, maneuvering the mule-drawn boat through the intricate system of locks. This experience, though physically demanding, provided him with valuable insights into the lives of the working class. In 1860, when the Civil War broke out, Garfield heeded the call. He served as a Union Major General, leading his troops to victory in the crucial Battle of Middle Creek. After the war, he turned his attention to politics and was elected to Congress as a representative of Ohio. A dedicated Republican, he served for 17 years before winning a surprise nomination for the presidency in 1880. His presidency, however, was tragically short-lived. On July 2, 1881, he was shot by an assassin, Charles J. Guiteau, and he passed away just 200 days into his term, leaving a promising career cut short. Garfield's brief tenure as president was marked by his staunch support for civil rights and education, and his commitment to these causes has left an indelible mark on the nation's history. From janitor to preacher, war hero to United States president, the life of James A. Garfield, while tragically cut short, had truly been lived to the fullest. It encapsulates the spirit of relentless perseverance and perfectly illustrates our American dream. Francis Kelsey. It was the early 1960s, a time of rapid scientific progress and medical optimism. A new drug, thalidomide, developed by the German pharmaceutical company Grunenthal, was taking the world by storm. It was a wonder pill, a cure for everything from insomnia to morning sickness. It had already disseminated across Europe, Australia, and beyond, where it was sold over the counter, no prescription needed. It was popular. It was widespread. It was a medical marvel. As thalidomide was being peddled across the globe, a submission for its approval in the United States was filed in 1960. However, its arrival met an immovable object. Dr. Francis Kelsey. The brand new medical officer at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was assigned the seemingly routine task of reviewing the application for thalidomide's approval, and she had some questions. Despite thalidomide's global success and aggressive marketing as being extremely safe, Kelsey was not swayed. She dove into the available data, spotting a glaring absence, a lack of rigorous safety testing, also the presence of peripheral neuritis, a painful nerve condition reported in some thalidomide users, raised a red flag for her. If thalidomide could affect the nervous system, Kelsey reasoned, it might also cross the placental barrier and potentially harm a developing fetus. Despite immense pressure from the drug company and others, Kelsey stood her ground, requiring additional testing of the drug. Her refusal to rubber-stamp the approval without solid safety data was met with frustration, even accusations of obstructiveness. Yet Kelsey was undeterred. Thank you, Dr. Kelsey. Her caution proved to be life-saving. Soon, alarming reports from Europe began to surface, linking thalidomide to severe birth defects in babies whose mothers had consumed the drug. In Australia, obstetrician Dr. William McBride observed an unusual surge of infants born with phocomelia, a condition where babies were born with severely shortened limbs or no limbs at all. 
He connected this to the mother's use of thalidomide, a fact that was soon verified around the globe. Kelsey's refusal to bow to pressure shielded the United States from the worst of the thalidomide tragedy. Her vigilance saved thousands of American families from the heartbreaking aftermath faced by families overseas. But her influence did not stop there. The thalidomide disaster prompted significant changes in drug testing and approval protocols, transforming global standards of drug safety. Kelsey continued working at the FDA for over four decades, receiving numerous accolades for her work, including the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service and induction into the National Women's Hall of Fame in the United States in 2015. Her legacy stands as a symbol of integrity and vigilance in medical history and begs us to ask the hard questions, to look beyond the popularity and to always first do no harm. Edward Bernays Where did the idea of fake news come from? You probably think of it as a rather modern notion, but I have a story about a guy who was manipulating public opinion in exactly this way nearly a century ago. Want proof? Why do you think Americans eat bacon and eggs in the morning? Or buy a diamond ring for a marriage proposal? These and many other concepts didn't just happen organically. They were engineered, crafted, and embedded into our collective consciousness by one man, Edward Bernays, the master of spin. Bernays was born in Vienna, but moved to the United States as a child. After attending Cornell University, he found his way into advertising, which was when his real story began. The techniques he developed were founded on the principles of his famous uncle, Sigmund Freud, turning public relations into a form of applied psychology. In the 1920s, cigarettes were an indulgence enjoyed primarily by men. Hired by the American Tobacco Company, Bernays' task was to increase the sales of Lucky Strike cigarettes to women, he cleverly staged a protest at the 1929 Easter Parade in New York City. He had fashionable young women march down the street, defiantly smoking what he had dubbed Torches of Freedom. The event was covered by the media extensively and was wildly successful in changing public perception about the suitability of women smoking. Cha-ching! For the tobacco company. When the Beechnut Packing Company hired him to boost the sales of their bacon, Bernays enlisted the help of a physician propagating the idea that a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs was essential for health. Thus, a national dietary tradition was born. The De Beers Diamond Company came calling in the 1930s. Bernays ingeniously came up with a plan to associate diamonds with the notion of eternal love. He cleverly arranged for diamonds to appear in romance films, persuaded fashion designers to discuss the importance of diamonds in high fashion, and even covertly invaded high schools to convince students that diamonds were intrinsically linked with the concepts of love and marriage. Today, it's hard to imagine a marriage proposal without a diamond ring. Edward was even hired by Procter & Gamble to help popularize their Dixie Cups. This one was easy. He told people that drinking from disposable cups was much healthier and more sanitary. Voila! In a darker turn of events, the United Fruit Company hired Edward in the 1950s, when their business interests in Guatemala were threatened by the newly elected government there. Bernays masterminded a propaganda campaign, painting the Guatemalan government as a looming communist threat. The result? A U.S. government-backed coup in Guatemala in 1954, toppling their elected officials. 
Edward Bernays, master puppeteer of public opinion. His story is one of influence and manipulation, of powerful symbols and psychological strings pulled behind the scenes. Let's take it as a cautionary tale as we head out into our world of advertisements, viral social media campaigns, and political propaganda. I wonder, whose puppet are you? Puyi. This is the story of the last emperor of China. His name was Puyi. Unlike his predecessors, the arc of this ruler's story has more ups and downs than the Great Wall. His tumultuous journey spanned the highs of imperial power to the lows of civilian life, and everywhere in between. Born in 1906, Puyi ascended the Dragon Throne as the emperor of China when he was merely two years and ten months old. His reign, however, was short-lived. You see, times were tough for China, and through no fault of his own, Puyi's administration was pretty corrupt. Social unrest manifested itself in the form of the Xinhai Revolution and the establishment of the Republic of China. Puyi was forced to abdicate his rule in 1912, marking the end of the Qing Dynasty and over 2,000 years of Chinese imperial rule. For a while, the young ex-emperor was allowed to remain in the Forbidden City, living a life of relative luxury. However, this period of goodwill ended abruptly in 1924, when a coup led by warlord Feng Yuxiang expelled him from his palace home. Stripped of his title and power, and now evicted from his only home, Puyi was left with few options. But the drama in his life was far from over. An offer of a return to power came to him from the most unlikely source, Japan. In 1932, Japan invaded a section in northeastern China called the State of Manchuria. Puyi's appointment to power here served to placate international and domestic criticisms of the Japanese invasion and occupation of this land. Initially, he was named the chief executive, but soon, once again in his young life, Puyi received the title of emperor. Unfortunately, despite the lofty moniker, he was largely a symbolic figurehead. Essentially under Japanese control, he wielded little actual power. He adopted a Japanese lifestyle and even married a Japanese woman. Are you ready for the next twist in Puyi's life? That came in 1945 at the conclusion of World War II. He was captured by Soviet forces and handed over to the Chinese Communist government as a war criminal. This led to a decade-long imprisonment in a re-education camp where communist ideology was the only course in the syllabus. In 1959, Puyi was released and once again returned to Beijing. Now an ordinary citizen in a society he had once ruled, he took up various jobs to sustain himself. He worked as an English language editor for a news station and then as a lowly gardener. Puyi, the last emperor of China, died in 1967 in obscurity. No procession, no public funeral, almost no one noticed. Puyi's life was a constant whirlwind of change. His story is a reflection of China's journey through revolution and reform, tradition and transformation. His forgettable death marked the end to what was an otherwise unforgettable chapter in the annals of Chinese history. Credits
The stories, content, and narration in this podcast were created with the assistance of large language models like Bard from Google AI, Anthropic's Claude AI Assistant, and GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 by OpenAI. The background music was Inspirational Cinematic Trailer by Tailkeeper Music and Motivational Guitars by Clementi Skripnikov, both from Pond5 Productions found at www.pond5.com. The narrator voices were produced in conjunction with Eleven Lab Studios at www.elevenlabs.io. Special thanks goes to my wife, kids and friends who provided suggestions and input throughout the project and put up with my incessant story writing over the course of 2023. Thanks guys! The end.